Welcome to Usual Pets, an arts and poetic philosophy podcast with hosts Richard Gilbert and Jeff Cairns. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to usualpets.com. Greetings, listeners. Today, we have a special guest with us from across the big pond, John March, an audio and video engineer, producer, artist, composer, musician, who offers a fascinating hour speaking on his career in contemporary music, the zeitgeist of its ins and outs, and the challenge of maintaining a spiritually creative vision from the early 80s to this present moment. As well, he has written The Dharmic Gap, a poem we have scored for our WTF, the wondrous transmogrified filaments for this episode. Check it out. And please enjoy. We are the Dharmic Gap. Between the bums and the punks, bridging the transatlantic metaphorical alliterations and breathless gasps of refuge not taken. Reimagining the precepts of Tantra, tantra distorted. Like snow lions, painted black as obsidian. We reside between the failed slogans and the discarded dreams of dharmic causality. No origination depending on the constrained pentameter of restrained and uncounted syllable-driven Zen koans, folded like origami chrysanthemums on fire, then submerged in the murk and mire of poetic diatribes. the stars working out their karmic shit, the pubescent fumbling hands of death seeking to open the cosmic bra strap of causality and clarification, 
groping at the breasts of obscured purpose and the elusive Dharma dreams of Shambhala. Form is emptiness, and language is form. And shunyata is lost amidst the shuffling spiritual bureaucracy of certainty and proliferation. fettered anger of a generation looking out at those who choose not to howl. Or to follow the mad ones. Or the dreamers. Tuning out the conservative corporate daydreaming hell realm lackeys. about the Bukowski drunkard saviors and the cannonball Adderley riffing metaphysical sociopaths. Laughing at the frenzied and manic sociological bar crawls and desperate polysyllabic rants, all inevitably leading to silence. poetic sense of injustice that hates DJs and DMT and soulless conversations about the wounds we all carry, drowning out the metaphysical uncertainty principle. I am the too loud guitar in the space between words. Let me just start with the fact that we've known each other since we met at Naropa, at that time, Naropa Institute. And I'm trying to remember when it was, 1980... January 17th, 1980. 1980. I'd only been in Boulder like a few weeks. Yeah, January 17th. We were in the lobby and I was playing, I was playing my guitar. It was in that little lobby outside the main yeah. area, and you came up to me. I was playing my guitar, yeah. and you said some shit, and I said some shit, and then we became friends. That's right. And uh, at that time, Naropa was upstairs. There was an old ballroom in the, on the Pearl Street Mall, and it was unaccredited, and there were like maybe 40 students or something. I think that's more than there were. Well, registered BA students, probably there was only like 20 yeah, there weren't that many people there. And I think there was more dancers than poets or music people. Yep. 
And so nothing much has changed? No. I'm the same douche, you're the same douche. We're the same. <laughs> so even though we've known each other that long and gone through a lot of experiences together and apart since I've been in Japan since 1997, people don't know anything about you. So what do you do? I mean, I don't, I don't honestly know the answer to that. I, I, I've lived this very odd... I thought you'd say that. I have no idea what I do. It's like going to be like pulling teeth. I know that. No, I mean, I don't, I don't have an answer that falls into any particular category. Uh, okay, how did you lose your categories? Did you have any to begin with? Weren't you a musician or trying to be at one point? I started, and I still am. I started as a professional musician. I went to five undergraduate schools to study music. So they were all unhelpful? No, it was a really weird path. I was like 15 when I graduated high school, and I, I went to... Um, you went to Dalton, right, in New York City? I went to Dalton in New York. In fact, uh, Jeffrey Epstein was my eighth grade uh, <laughs> geometry teacher. Great. Yeah. And Donald Barr, who's William Barr's father, was my sadistic principal. That was, that was odd. That's creepy. I didn't have a lot of money, and I'd left home at a young age, and so I got a scholarship at a liberal arts college where I got a good grades and then I got a scholarship to NYU where I got good grades and then I got accepted to Indiana University. But you left each time? Yeah, every year I would apply to a different school with the grades that I would get because I wanted to get into a better a better musical program. And uh, okay. the first college was mostly about women and, and foosball. Uh-huh, yeah, okay. You know, and then and I played guitar all day. And there was a fair amount of drug use in the community at the time. I mean, it was I, I was I smoked a lot of pot when I was young, but I don't think I was you know that overwhelmed. I mean, there were some excesses because I was free for the first time at fifteen and a half, yeah. and I was surrounded by a lot of eighteen and nineteen year old women, and you know there was exploration. And then NYU was uh, I was in the music and business and technology program at a time where there was no such thing, and so I. Like, I was learning synthesis on Martin Sabotnik's Bukla. Wow. I was able to, I worked with the Alvin Ailey Dance Company when I was very young. I won a, an award for doing a piece for them. Uh, and I got a good grades, and then I got accepted to Indiana University, which was, at that time, very prestigious because it was David Baker, who was a very well-known jazz instructor. But when I got there, they'd never had a guitar player before. Mm -hmm. And I was 17 or 18 as a junior. And they had no music for me. Uh -huh. So they, they said, well, you can play the piano parts or you can play the first tenor parts. And I was like, I don't want to do either of those things. And mm -hmm. I couldn't gig. In Indiana. Because the drinking age was 21 in Indiana. So I uh -huh. basically, the only time I've ever actually drunk alcohol because you couldn't get anything else was during that eight-week period where I was at Indiana. And I drank a lot and met a lot of girls. And after eight weeks, I just realized I needed to leave. So I called a friend of mine who was at Berkeley because I'd been there for the summer, and I said, I need to transfer. Mm -hmm. Can I get a scholarship? And they were like, yes. So I ended up going to... How could that have happened so quickly? How could you get a scholarship? You know me. You know me, Richard. Yeah, you hustled. I just, just don't stop calling it. I, my rule is I don't stop calling until someone says, please stop, right? So if it interests me, I'll just keep pursuing it until either it's a dead end or I find something else to pursue. It's how I got my first job as a, as a, as, as a music programmer, I... I'd finished college. So you went to Berkeley for a couple of years? I went to Berkeley for two years. Yeah. And just before I graduated, just before I met you, I was living in a tenement. In Boston. My two friends and I were living in a very, 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 very bad neighborhood in a very rundown tenement. There were rats and roaches and it was very, very bad. And I was working full time and going to school. And I was in the shower and a piece of the ceiling fell out and knocked me on, well, knocked me to the ground. <laughs> 
And while I was on the ground, a rat bit me. Okay, And I was gross. kind of dismayed. Yeah. I was dismayed. And my our mutual friend Janine, who I'd known since nursery school, was at Naropa. Mm-hmm. And we were talking. She goes, you should come out here. It's really awesome. So the next day, I packed up all my stuff and grabbed my guitar and left the apartment and right. got on a plane and flew out to Boulder. And it was just kind of that sort of um, fortuitous. And I stayed at the University Inn on Broadway. So it was like for, the attack of the rat was kind of a signal. It was a weird, yeah, it was a weird, the attack of the rat is the foundation of my artistic career. <laughs> the attack of the rat. Old Boston. I like Boston. I mean, out of that scene, I mean, that was enough, just the way you were living. It wasn't so much Berkeley, maybe necessarily. Yeah, I wasn't really an academic. I was never really particularly interested. And then I just ended up in Europa. Were you studying like, jazz period or more like production at Berkeley? Like, what, or was it too structured? Or, you know, if you had really loved it, you would have probably found a way to stay. I was studying with Mick Goodrick at uh, New England Conservatory a lot privately. Um, and Mick was very well known at that time for working with Gary Burton and teaching Pat Metheny and a bunch of other well-known guys. Wow. Uh, I think uh, Mike Stern and a bunch of other mm-hmm. like well-knowns. And I studied with Mick for probably six months off and on. I'd had a relationship with other well-known guitar teachers, Ted Green, which I had a lifetime relationship with. Yeah. And, you know, I liked certain aspects of being in Boston. I liked the, the freedom. It's a big city. The subway system, the, the tram systems were really good. I didn't like where I was living, obviously. But, you know, again, I'm a survivalist. So I, I just, you know, so, you know, an urban survivalist. And I just kind of decided that at a certain point that what I was learning wasn't as useful as if I could be out gigging or doing something more vital. I don't know why Boulder sparked me, but it was like getting out of a big city. John, was there a rich gigging uh, situation in Boston at the time? I was really lucky. I was playing at a place called Riles Mm -hmm. really regularly. Riles was like one of the two main venues. And I was playing downstairs with a guy named Herman Johnson. And Pat Matheny was playing upstairs. And Herman was this really wonderful, very inspiring sax teacher, very upbeat. Mm -hmm probably be in his 70s or 80s now, or he may have passed, I don't know. But I was just lucky to be in his band, and I wasn't particularly good. Mm. I wasn't a particularly good guitar player at that point in my life, mm-hmm. but I was focused on it, hyper-focused. Right. So I you know, did that gig, but Boulder just seemed to be like a good escape from like the East Coast, which I'd always lived on, and a big social change. Like I was yep. still part hippie. I'd been a hippie when I was young. And, and a few days after I arrived in Boulder, I was living in Allen Ginsberg's house. So it was a it was a, an unusual thing, and I met Richard, and we became fast friends. And one of the probably most important partners of my life was a woman I met at Naropa. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I spent a lot of time in that focus. And not long after I graduated from Naropa, I kind of began came involved in other aspects of music and production. And I think my sense of diversification came at a, a weird moment in my life where some like high level auditions came up, and I didn't get them. And my father, who was a a long-term freelance artist said to me, you know, you should really diversify. You should know how to do more things, mm. especially technical. Mm-hmm. So I became a, a Sinclair programmer, which right. at that time was pretty cutting edge. And I did that by saying, you know, I walked into their offices one day and I said, I want to buy a manual, a set of manuals, which was... I remember them. <laughs> I, yeah, and they were really expensive at the time. It was 600 bucks. Like a set of Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, and that was a lot. It was a lot for me. And they said, why do you want this? You know, the machines cost a million dollars. And I said, I just, I just want to learn how to do it. So maybe I can do it. And they laughed. 
And I went home and I, I didn't sleep for two weeks I and I memorized the manuals and I went back to them and I said, I've memorized the manuals. I'd like to hire one of your product specialists at night after his shift to teach me two or three times a week so I can learn how to use the machine. And I had drawn out the keyboard on a piece of paper so that I could practice and they laughed again. And then I trained with Greg Laporta, who's still a friend of mine. And three weeks later, I was a Sinclair programmer at the record plant in New York. <laughs> Could you explain briefly for probably most of the people listening don't know what a Sinclair was, or it's still it, they still are a few around? You can buy them, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't. But yeah. Yes. I mean, it's now old tech in a sense, but it was a brilliant concept, you know, wedding technology with the ability to create original composition, I think. I mean, it's, it's probably in some ways more mentally or cognitively expansive as a platform than a lot of new stuff. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I still think it's better in many ways than most of the stuff that's out. Could I mean, you talk about that a little bit? Like, what uh, you have the experience that, you know, very few people have, so. The Sinclair was a originally a science project by these two guys at Dartmouth. And it was an exercise in form and function. Mm. They were working with practical applications of Nyquist theorem, which was the idea of mm. how do you, Nyquist theorem is this uh, physics postulate that says if you can take a, an accurate picture of every frequency from zero to whatever the threshold of hearing is uh, on both sides of the wave, mm -hmm. I don't know how you would describe that, but yeah, positive and negative side. If you can take an accurate picture, you could actually create a digital model of that sound. Mm -hmm. So digital sampling was at the... I mean, Nyquist proposed this back in the 40s, I think. But um, at the very beginning of synthesis, there was um, analog synthesis, which was taking electrical voltage and applying it to sine waves, triangle waves, and square waves and creating multiple layers of oscillation to create sounds. Mm -hmm. So that was analog synthesis. So things that people would know would be like the theremin, which was a, an instrument that controlled sine waves through pitch and volume mm -hmm. by moving your hands yeah. within a radio frequency. A lot of science fiction films of the 50s had that yeah. sound. Morton Subutnik later famously scored, was it Forbidden Planet? Yeah, and, that, and then he moved on to the Bukla because the Bukla was... Was that 60, 68 or something? Yeah, one of the earliest U.S. electronic instruments. Yeah, and they're virtuosos now with the theremin that can do like multiple. Oh, yeah. But the Sinclair was a leap into, it ran on a Mac that froze a lot. I remember that. Well, originally it started without a computer. And what it was, was it was FM synthesis only. Mm -hmm. So it was this very specifically built piano keyboard that had a lot of controls in it that would let you address the shape of the sound and layer uh, performances along what's now called sequencing. And then the second evolution of uh, Sinclair, which more people know about, is when the advent of sampling came into play. And sampling is that idea of Nyquist theorem of taking a picture of a sound mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at all possible frequency responses and then being able to play that back at various sampling rates and pitches. Uh, Max Headroom is a really good example of that. A lot of the uh, hip-hop sort of early... Set late 70s, early 80s kind of hip-hop movies with breakdancing. And then a lot of the pop market like evolved in jazz market. People like Pat Metheny and Sting and Michael Jackson and Madonna and I don't know. I mean, I can, I can name all the U2, mm -hmm. not U2. Um, I, don't, I can't think of it. You can look it up. But right. there's a lot of the pop of the 80s was based on sampling. Mm -hmm. And then the Sinclair was a key instrument in that. And yeah. this was at a time where one meg of RAM 
or one meg of hard disk space cost a thousand dollars. Yeah, it's hard to believe. So one single meg of RAM, and I think you can buy. Like, I mean, it's I don't know the what's the what's the scientific law about the memory thing? Oh, Moore's law. So every yeah, Moore's law. The doubling of computing power every... Yeah, it's some ridiculous... Anyway, yeah, the idea is that ever since Moore proposed it, it seems to have been accurate that computing power doubles. Yeah, and the memory now is like a, you can buy a terabyte for like $200, which is exponentially yeah. variable. Right. So Synclavier then became this platform where you could combine synthesis, sample mod uh, modification and manipulation and sequencing, and sequencing is where you create things that occur in time and in layers. And the Synclavier keyboard could have multiple layers happening at the same time. I think it was four layers. Yeah, four layers. And it was just this very complex piece of, of technology that you had to understand, like a lot of layers of software, but it was sort of the forefront of what we understand how music production works now. Mm -hmm. And there were other competitive companies, the Fairlight, which was mm -hmm. not particularly interesting to me. And then... There were a couple others that followed that didn't. And then Pro Tools and then the advent of Pro Tools and Logic and now Ableton. Okay. And, you know, um, what's the one on Apple that everybody uses? Um, well, not Band in a Box, but Band. Uh, Garage Band. Garage Band, yeah. But it's that kind of thing was based on everything that was starting Synclavier. And Synclavier basically folded because it was, it was just excessively expensive. Uh, I owned, I think, four of them over a 10 or 15 year period. And it took me to some really amazing places. I mean, Richard was in a number of them. Yeah. I have my own room at Westlake Audio, which is the studio where Michael Jackson worked. And and I got to meet a lot of neat, neat people. Were you, so you went to the record plan. I remember you were kind of a, how would you call it? Like assisting and learning and assisting and then stepped up. I mean, they, at some point you were able to do production. Well, I had mentors. Yes. So yes. the first guy I worked for was a guy named Hans Tobiasen, who became a very, right. very big television producer. He did a... A lot of sci-fi channel stuff. And then and then I got very lucky and ended up working with a guy named Bruce Nazarian for probably 10 years. Yeah, Bruce was uh, the original guitar player in Brownsville Station. And he was also uh, an autodidact. I mean, he was just, he had perfect pitch. He had photographic memory. He was an amazing musician and a technologist. He literally wrote the book on DVD authoring for Apple Encoding. And just technology and music and art and science and and this is a guy who taught himself to speak Portuguese in two weeks because he wanted to impress a girl. Yeah. <laughs> Nicknamed the gnome. Gnome, yes. Very, very amazing individual. He passed away a while ago now. I think about 10 years ago. Yeah. Or 10 years yeah, ago. That was, I remember um, that hit you pretty hard, actually. Yeah, we had a very strong uh, Kampai so, Senpai. Oh, Senpai Kohai, yeah. Senpai Kohai. He was my Senpai. Sem he was my Senpai? Yeah, yeah, he was your Senpai. My Senpai, I was his Kohai, yeah. even when we were equals. When we were equals within our field, he was always my senpai. That's very Japanese, yeah. How did you get to L.A. from the record plant in New York? So, I mean, you were in New York for not that long, a year? I think four or five years. I was there, and then uh, my father passed, and I came out mm -hmm. to take care of him. And while I was out in Los Angeles, some opportunities, the thing about Westlake Audio came up mm -hmm. uh, as an opportunity to be uh, have my own room, basically, at one of the most prestigious studios in the world. And... Was that due to your expertise on the Synclavier and they needed, they needed what you could offer? Sort of. I was partnered with a guy out of Chicago and we bought my first system together. The owner of Westlake Audio, who's still a very good friend of mine, and I struck a deal where I would bring in clients and one of them was Michael. Michael Jackson would come and work. 
we did a lot of, I'm still not really allowed to talk about what I did, but we did a lot of work with him in the room. And then I had other clients and I wasn't there for about a year and a half, I would say. We recorded uh, two of my poetic pieces there at Westlake. Yeah, we recorded in Studio D. Which was super exciting. It's like a very prestigious room. That room was... Yeah, yeah. That room was the one where a lot of the Dangerous record was recorded. That was, that was awesome. You were a hard and fair taskmaster. I liked the way you were. You were you're <laughs> tough. You're tough. I don't think you said that at the time. Uh, no, probably because I was too nervous. But we're in LA and we're you know, talking about world-class studios. I'd like to mention that I sat in on some of those sessions, you know, uh, listening to the producer... And how abusive, I mean, I don't think I ever actually met a non-abusive producer. That's fair for me to say as an independent person. They're pretty, like in L.A., in that environment, they're so demanding. If you can't produce almost immediately what they ask you for in terms of playing, like you're out. I mean, there's just someone, they'll try someone else. Like, I'll play it, play it with a little more heavy metal edge. Or can you just, you know, I don't like the way you did blah, blah, blah. Can you do that? And you would. You could pretty much take, you would sight read and... I was not... I was not temperamentally suited to the session scene. This is just bringing me to this point that has always somewhat amazed me about the difficulty of this commercial music business, which is how can you be artistically creative, but also in this environment of extreme pressure and hustling? Well, I was better at it as a Sinclair programmer than I was as a guitar player, for sure. You know, I was, I was not... I mean, as creative as a creative, I did better as a band leader and an arranger than I did as a session musician. I know a lot of the session musicians in LA, you know, they have a certain personality and a certain skill set. Mm-hmm. I don't do well. The only person I did well with who was, and I wouldn't use the word abusive because he cared a lot about me, was Bruce. Bruce was a an exception. Bruce in was way. unbelievably demanding and yes. and hard as a senpai. Yeah. Wait, which one is yeah, the upper no, one? Yeah, upper you one. Got it. Senpai. Senpai. He was unbelievably demanding, but it was because his expectation was that I would be on my own at some point, and he wanted me to not ever feel that I couldn't solve the problem. Mm. And so he would make me, it was almost like he wanted me to make mistakes mm. because as a mentor, he wanted me to find my way out. Mm. Even though 25 years later, I'd still call him when I would get stuck and we would talk. Mm. Wow. But it was more as equals at that point. But when I was training with him, especially if I was on the clock and making money, he was brutal. Mm. I found myself going back and forth on that because I've trained people recently, two young millennials. One of them did not make it past muster and, and ended up having a lot of difficulty working with me because he didn't want to assume the co-high position. And I don't mean that in any weird way, but he didn't want right, to, right. he didn't want to take direction. And, mm-hmm. and the other one was completely willing. And now we work together. And I, you know, I have a good working relationship with him. And I think that there's a lot to be said for that style of rigid, not abuse, but strict sense. If there's a sense behind it that that person wants you to succeed. Like they're actually honoring something in you. Yeah, the real mentor. It's not abusive in terms of like, I don't, I don't care about you. No, if he was being cruel to me as just cruel, yeah. I would have left. I remember a number of producers who really, really were very hostile, demanding hostile, like... Oh, I had a horrific session. Just, just screaming. I mean, this was like not that unusual. Oh, I mean, there's worse than that. Yeah. Not screaming is like, what's worse than that is doing a session and you don't hear them talking behind the glass. They go, thanks a lot. That was great. And you're yeah. packing. You see the next guy coming in. <laughs> you know? Remember you told me once about LA? Do you remember this? You said, 
Uh, let me get it right. Okay, car, shoes, belt, watch. Do you remember that? You were describing yes. how you're evaluated as you drive into the parking lot as an independent, you were an entrepreneur your whole time in LA pretty much. And that you- That's a women thing. That's a really sexist women thing I said. Why do you need a decent car? Like, why do you need decent- sh- Again, I think I was referring to women. Oh, you think so? First thing women do is they look at your, they look at your car- when you get out of the car, they're looking at what shoes you're wearing and what watch you had on. And, you know, it was, I never really cared for the LA scene. I, you know, I, Are you saying that it's like basically, though, very materialistic experience in LA? You were in LA for a long time, like 25 years, 20, yeah. 25 years. You didn't make many friends there. I mean, it was a very isolating, as I recall, it was pretty isolating. I have good friends from there who've all left at this point. But I mean, Los Angeles is an entire culture devoted to failure. Because in order for the 1% who are, are succeeding to be able to succeed and thrive off the market value, 99.9% yeah. or the 0.1%, 99.9% have to fail. And the culture is this very desperate culture of um, prestige and status based on what people are doing at any given moment. So the conversations generally lean towards what are you doing? How can you help me? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of sort of manipulative social isolation that occurs because of that. The environment is very harsh. The driving and traffic all day is very harsh. The social extremes of wealth, power, and prestige are prevalent everywhere. And very few people actually have access to it, but everybody wants it. Yeah. And the entire city is kind of built on the trickle-down economics of those people mm. who make it to that top tier and then the people who want to be in that top tier. I never was really, I mean, you know me well enough to know I'm not really, that's just not my thing. I mean, I like earning money and I like being comfortable, but. Do you think that is good advice for someone trying to do something in the music business? Hustle? There is no music business. Not anymore, right? Yeah, there is no music business. How do you mean no? Except for super celebrities or... John, uh, you mentioned that there's no music business. I realize that's probably a relative statement, you know, looking back on what you've gone through and where you are now. But there's obviously a music business of sorts and that music's being made and produced. And I was wondering if you could touch on what has been lost in that whole process since, you know, the 1980s when you got into it to now, and possibly what's been gained in it, too? I mean, first of all, the construct of the music business is only about 120 years old. Yeah. I mean, yes, there was certain kinds of livelihood and structure prior to the you know, 19th century, early, you know, early 20th century, but it was pretty far and few between. I mean, it wasn't something that was really thought of as a real career. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can see some of the mythologies of like the Mozarts and the mm-hmm. Beethovens and the Mahlers and the... Tchaikovsky's and some of that evolution into the 20th century. But it wasn't really until the advent of like radio and mm-hmm. the ability to record similar to the advent of photography and the television of film and television that it started to become more of a lucrative potential. The shift from vaudeville into Broadway theater into radio mm-hmm. was where you start seeing people like um, 
oh, I don't know, Gershwin's, the Gershwin's starting to make a lot of money because they can, they can um, capitalize on the music publishing component of music mm. going out into the world. And then that whole, you know, infrastructure of corporatism around the music business, mm -hmm. the theater business, the radio business, mm. the television business, and all those models evolving over a very short period of time, over maybe a hundred years. Mm. Up until the fifties, I would say you were pre-spectacle. So pre-spectacle meaning that in order to disseminate and distribute music or entertainment and theater, even up to the early stages of sixties television, I was pretty hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't something that was very, radio was still very popular, television in its infancy. And so music was something that was something that, that brought people together. I mean, I have strong memories of the early 60s of like having a record collection. I remember I was very into comedy records when I was very young. And I remember the big deal about like getting the new Richard Pryor record right. or the new Abbott Costello mm -hmm. record or the new George Carlin record and sitting in my room at seven or eight and wearing those <laughs> records out laughing. Mm -hmm. So it was like, it was that distribution mechanism that was there. And the technology was inaccessible. It was expensive. It was challenging. Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, Advent of the Beatles were building this thing up. And then there was a fairly big turning point when the Beatles did the Shea Stadium, where you had your first giant real spectacle, 64, right. I think it was. 64, yeah. Yeah, where you had the first big spectacle concert, mm -hmm. where if you look at that footage, it's pretty amazing, because oh, yeah. first of all, you can't hear them. Yeah. And that sound system is fairly inadequate for Shea Stadium. Mm -hmm. And they're surrounded by, I think it's 40,000, 50,000 kids screaming, and they're just doing their thing. And it's at that moment where I think there's some light switch went off in some corporate dude's head where it's like spectacle, money, distribution, and me mechanics have opportunity. And so you can see the evolution of that all mm -hmm. the way through the late 60s, Hendrix, early 70s, then weird shift because of the cinematography component with disco and staying alive. And then mm -hmm. 80s, you have progressive rock where you have like the visuals of like Peter Gabriel and Genesis and Yes mm -hmm. and all that really great music, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. And then the advent of obviously MTV. And MTV was essentially the death of music, mm. as you and I understand it. Because, I mean... The entire system of a music industry is again a system designed to fail because the economic modality was that for every hundred acts that the music business would invest in, maybe one would not let's go with a thousand. Every thousand acts that the music industry would invest in, maybe one would do it. Right. And it would they get the tax write off of the thousand failures and they get the money income for the one success. And not only that, but the people who were invested in those thousand failures all were physically in debt structurally in debt mm -hmm. to the companies because the model was you're, you're a band I found you I'm going to invest in you making a record you now owe me that money so you're going to go out on tour but now you owe me the money because I'm backing the tour right. if you don't sell enough tickets and you don't recoup you owe me the money and I'll, I'll keep investing until either you sink or swim and you know 999 out of a thousand would sink mm -hmm. and so the business model was based on a, a correlative, correlative relationship between radio airplay which was based on a system of payola, mm -hmm. where the record companies would pay people to market their materials. Yeah. And debt, indentured servitude, essentially, for musicians, because it was a debt-based economy. And then the microcosm of the few that would super succeed, generating tremendous revenue. Mm -hmm. So what's happened now is, is that the advent of technologies is that the systems of technology everybody has. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have more power 
I have more power in my computing system for making music in this studio here than NASA had to launch the moon mission. Mm -hmm. You know, and more than my Sinclair, more than my million dollar Sinclair. I have all the means of distribution. Look at Jacob Collier. Jacob Collier right. became famous because he made all these cool YouTube videos of him singing multiple stacked harmonies and creating videos. And now he has like six Grammy Awards and he's incredibly talented. But that system of he makes, or Billie Eilish, who I'll probably take a lot of crap for this from anybody, but I hate her music. Mm -hmm. But she and her brother sat in their bedroom for a couple of years and made these crappy records that now have sold hundreds of millions of copies and made her a world-class superstar. Right. Where it's totally insubstantial and uninteresting, but it's how it works. Mm -hmm. But there's no modality right now for uh, developing real artists. There's no real label system anymore. There's no real opportunity, well, especially with COVID, there's no real opportunity to tour and develop. Mm -hmm. And the the economics of who succeeds and who doesn't is very random because, I mean, now you've got all these categories and genres because festivals, if you're a jam band or an EDM artist, that's different than being a solo artist. Jazz artists have a very difficult time. Sure. Mm -hmm. And the genre thing makes it very difficult to market and sell. So the business is now basically, how can you hustle and how can you survive at the most bare bones level? And if you're not someone like myself who has multiple skill sets, like I'm talking to a friend today mm -hmm. who are going back to playing and, you know, because they have to and... There's no choice, but that's not music business used to have an end game. So the music business was hierarchical. I'm an artist. I'm going to develop a band. I'm going to get seen. I'll get picked up. People invest in me. I'll go on tour and I'll get bigger and bigger opportunities or I'll fail. That's not the case anymore. No one's looking for you. There are no bigger and better opportunities. And 99% of the young musicians don't understand what end game means because they just want to be seen by their friends in their little social circles. Right. You're doing this. And maybe if you have an idea of a bigger game and dream of these big things, but they don't really know how to go about doing it. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the the poor man's version of why there's no music business anymore. When you say diversify, as you said, something that actually your father recommended when you were just opening your eyes to the scene. And now you just mentioned that again. And I'm wondering what it means within the fields that you work in, because I think you're multidisciplinary now and in, in you're into all sorts of production, uh, management. I'm not sure all the things that you are doing. It seems like... Neither am I. Weren't you doing festival production, yeah. big festival yeah. production? I was, I was producing a festival and then I was also helping to produce large live stream. I don't know, my skill sets are weird. So I have a lot of production technology skill sets in music, post recording, film, post-production, sound design, mm -hmm. editorial, all the sort of technologies of music and audio and sound. I have a lot of background as an engineer and as a production person. And then I have um, mm -hmm. a reasonably skilled video editor in Premiere and in Final Cut. And I have some, some skill in that. I'm a decent producer for film and video. Didn't you recently mix... Uh, I don't know if you produced, but you you mixed uh, Mike Stern. Yeah, my the, I've been working on a second record with him now, and, and an artist in Colorado named Bob Schlesinger, a pianist, and I mixed and produced the um, CD for them, and then just recently three films of the making of with him and Mike, and then we're starting on the second record right about now. It's more of a, a more epic sort of jazz thing, and yeah, that's been a great project. I like working on those materials. Mike is a very very interesting and creative musician. He's working with, I mean, it was with Eddie Gomez, who was Bill Evans' mm -hmm. bass player, and uh, Billy Drummond, who's a really great New York jazz drummer, and uh, Bob Schlesinger, who's a Colorado pianist and 
arranger and, and player, really good musicians. But that's just one thing. I mean, it's just, I do lots of dorky stuff. I mean, I, I did music <laughs> for cows recently. I did, there was a film that was about... You did, okay, could you explain that? Yeah, I, was a, I got called to do the original music for a documentary. Do you have a PA system in the speed lot? No, 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 it was a film about cows. Not for cows. Yeah, it was not for cows. It was a film about yeah. cows. Well, that might be... Apparently, cows like music. Apparently, they do. Jeff, I want to check in with Jeff. Was that your question? Yes, it did ask. Well, I was uh, kind of wondering whether there was a positive side to any of the evolution of the you know, music production business, probably, if any. Well, I mean, on some levels, you know, Carl Jung said that as the size of the group gets larger, the average of the IQ drops in proportion. Right. And as the advent of global dissemination and technology has increased, you can see it in music. Like, you know, you, you don't see Joni Mitchell music coming out anymore. Yeah, right, right. Or writing at that level of intellect and... I mean, maybe Jacob Collier musically, but not lyrically or interestingly. Right, right. And, you know, you, Snarky Puppy may be instrumentally. There are like right. little exceptions, little tiny pockets. But in general, you have people who are able to think in two and four bar loops yeah. and not play their instruments very well. And, you know, when I was coming up, you had to be able to actually play. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Play the instrument. Upside, to be honest, I think it's a very painful situation for younger musicians because the opportunity to play and be seen and be heard, which, you know, it's funny, you can see it actually in this sort of global modality of when you look at YouTube and look at what's happening for musicians. For example, like if you, if, like as a guitar player, I'm always looking and listening to guitar players. There's this new phenomenon where you'll see a video and the crop is from just below the chin to just above the waist and you're only seeing the guitar in the person's hands. Oh. And they're playing mm -hmm. whatever it is that they're playing you know, maybe one out of 10,000 is interesting and good, but there's a quality of the desperate need to connect, yeah, be seen, be heard, and be related to. Mm -hmm. I think if you're looking at music from two different angles, like, yeah, music is a business because there can be small livelihood and opportunity, but, you know, also music is something that touches on, like, the ineffable components of neurolinguistics. You've got a language-based system that can, that can move people energetically, emotionally, psychologically. It can be profoundly disturbing. You can be watching a film and you can have the same scene in a movie with three different styles of music and it'll affect you completely differently each way. Yeah. There's a depth to that. That's been shut aside. Like that level of wanting to connect to music for a sense of profundity mm -hmm. is gone. I believe entirely, almost entirely. Mm -hmm. That's... Freaky. Now, there are some jazz musicians who are pursuing profundity, but they're not really reaching a large audience. And, you know, mm. whether that matters or not, I don't know. I mean, there are people looking for profundity and people who are listening for profundity, but it's not the mass audience. If you're talking about the music business, and now I'm doing finger quotes, music business is a, is a system of acquisition of material wealth through the distribution and dissemination of a diluted art form. A diluted art form. Diluted. <laughs> because it is. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, marketing, packaging, sales, retail, you know, the, even the Grammy Awards are entirely a marketing, mm. you know, oh, yeah. it's not, it's not, first of all, why do you need to give an award to a musician? I mean, Jacob Collier's awards are well-deserved. I think his records were yeah. really amazing. Yeah, that's, maybe there's some range in that, but you know. But what's interesting is the guys who get the awards for being creative are not on the show. 
Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Talk about people like... The off-camera awards. It's all the stuff done in the other building. Right. And it's not seen by the general public. The only thing that's seen by the general public are the huge multi-million record mm-hmm. Billie Eilish's and Lady Gaga's and, you know, the people who are, who are selling huge commercial success. And the reason it's existing is to sell more mm. of their records. Right. Yeah. And it gives them a stamp of credibility within the sort of commercial artistic community. But the rest of the... I mean, I have friends who've won, you know, Grammy Awards, but you never see them on television. You never... Like for editing or for, you know, for posts or for, you know, those kind of... Well, things. no, I mean, like, you know, Pat Metheny's won 23 Grammy Awards. Oh. He's never been on television for it. Right. Um, Crazy. You know, Chick Corea's won. Uh, Jacob Collier's won. Mm. He's never been on television. You can... Mm. The, all the Native American stuff that's never been on, all the country music stuff that's never been on, all the more... Lately, all the Americana music, you know, the... I mean, a lot of the stuff that's more artistically and merit-based, where you have to really actually be quite good, but doesn't quite sell as much, they acknowledge it, mm-hmm. but they don't right. place it on the on the thing that's going out. So, Jeff, if you were asking me, I mean, the upside for me is I get to sit in my house. I have really nice tech. Right. I can make really beautiful stuff for people. Yeah. I think you and I did, which took me, you know, like yeah. an hour. Yeah. Really lovely playing. I got to play with a really great shakuhachi flute player, mm-hmm. you know, who was improvising. I got to sit here and figure out what the f- you were doing. <laughs> hey, John, I'd really love to touch on that in particular with you because, you know, even though we did uh, collaborate to some degree, I think you collaborated more with me than I collaborated with you at all. Having never actually talked to you since that point, I'm, I do want to say that what you did was fantastic. It was phenomenal. And you really dug into my intentions, I felt, with what I sent to you. So I'd like to know a little bit about the process that you went through. Was it just strictly listening to a section and then figuring out where I was going in terms of harmonic relationship and then spicing that up yourself as you felt fit or how did you approach that? Trying to remember. Yeah. Yeah. It was a while ago. Um, yeah. I, my remembrance is, is it was about a 10 minute piece, right? Somewhere in that right? Uh, close to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't really do a lot. I mean, I listened to what you were playing. Mm-hmm. I, I understood what the harmonic and melodic center was. Right. I think I listened to it just maybe once or twice. And then I picked up a guitar and I, I know enough about harmony right. and melody that I could create sequences of tension and release. Yeah. And the way you were arcing melodically, there was, I don't remember a lot of sense of time. I think it was very loose. Yeah, it was fairly loose. Yeah. Yeah. But I was able to impose a little bit of time and different spots and I was able to impose. So most in my ears at this point, harmony is about stability, instability, tension and release mm-hmm. and movement towards or away. Mm-hmm. When I was playing, my remembrance is I just did mostly accompaniment. I don't remember a lot of melodic interaction. I was just trying to support 
an arc, a narrative arc right. of what you were doing as a melodic improviser and then create some places of tension and release, stability and instability, motion towards or away. Right. Well, one of the things that stuck out to me, and I can't, I mean, there's no point to me saying it was this part in the piece, but it was where I uh, melodically made a key change and you preceded that uh, exactly. So, and I'm not sure how you anticipated that because it was not really a logical key change. It was... There are no logical keys. Well, in the sense that, you know, shakuhachi is a very limited instrument, at least on the surface. And the key change that I made was really quite outside of its, its physical limitations. But Do you remember what keys it was? No, I don't at all. But uh, at any rate, the thing that really impressed me is you came in with a chord prior, just prior to the key change that was exactly that key change. And I thought, well, wait a minute, maybe he listened to it first and then decided to precede that in that way, or, you know, it just may have been your gift uh, and the flow you were in at the moment. How about I just got lucky? Well, that too. I mean, <laughs> it's a big part of it, I guess. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, any melody note works with every chord. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. There's no, I could have done, there's a mil. I mean, I could have chosen to be much more unstable. Mm -hmm. I could have cho chosen to be much more extended. Mm -hmm. I had to listen to the style of what you were doing. Yeah. And, and, you know, I chose a more stable platform as I remember it. I mean, I could have taken it very, very complex. And it didn't feel like that was really congruent with what you were doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't remember taking more than one or two passes at going through it. Okay. And I remember I just was improvising against what you were doing. Well, wow, that's fabulous, really try and get what you to make what you sounded as beautiful as possible within that time frame. Right, right. Even if I'd had 3 months to sit with it, I could have probably taken it completely apart and mm -hmm. make it something. That kind of stuff is is the upside of these kind of environments right. now where you know, like you guys have a studio in Richard's house and yep. you make a podcast because you feel like it and yep. you know and and about as many people will listen to this podcast <laughs> as my last record. Yeah, maybe. Actually, uh, I think we're going to I think we're going to go with music for cows. Yeah, that could be the uh, that might be the, the title, title of this one. This one, yeah, yeah. music okay. for cows. Yeah, I can live with yeah. that. Okay. So, wait, wait, how about ineffable, ineffable music for cows? Ineffable, ineffable music. music for cows. Okay. I think music is always ineffable for cows. <laughs> I think I, it's funny that word has been stuck in my head for a while because it's a word in the English language which means something you can't talk about. Right. Mm. It's like a word that actually points to something that you can't put language to it. Yeah, but it's a word <laughs> that we have to come up with. It's like the Eskimos with like 80,000 words for snow. We actually had to come up with a word that says, yeah, you know, like Frank Zappa said that talking about music is like dancing about architecture. Right, right, yeah. You know, you can't... That's why this podcast makes very little sense. We like to compose music and, and create it, but it's very hard to talk about. There are a number of people around the world, we feel, who feel redeemed in life by being creative in the arts and they don't make money at it but we need to survive we both are teachers and uh, you know we have an existence we're not about to be terrorized or blown up or lose everything but i don't think that's where we identify in our you mentioned profundity that's ineffable not something that you go, oh, I want to be profound today oh i do <laughs> let's run with that one so you have motive for profundity then you know, my wife and I were talking about this is that, you know, I'm, 
I mean, even during the pandemic, I've written a lot of music. I've done a lot of original sourcing. I've produced, I think, something like 15 films. I write articles for magazines. I teach a Saturday international group of guitar players on how to work with Ted Green's materials. I'm constantly, like tonight in Italy, is it over yet? Yeah, in Italy, a group of musicians recorded a waltz that I wrote. Traditional Manouche, Django style, gypsy jazz guys. Um, I don't play that style particularly well, but a friend of mine who's very good at it does. And I'd written this waltz in the sort of Django Reinhardt style. And I really wanted to hear it. And I wanted to give it to my wife as a Mother's Day. It didn't work out, but but they recorded it. They videoed it and recorded it. And it's like, that's something I spent like a week or two on. And I have other artist friends that I collaborate with. I'm on a couple of records I'm playing on right now. And I'm constantly trying to create stuff because I get bored really easily. And me sitting around being bored is not, Richard knows me well enough to know that's not a particularly good choice. <laughs> it's not, not a good choice for me. So, you know, I think, and that's not about profundity as much as it is, is I like to make beautiful things. I mean, Richard's, a, listen, Jeff, I don't know you particularly well, but Richard is the hardest working person I've ever known in my life. You know, he's never, I've never known anybody in my life more applied to the disciplines of being, you know, uh, an autodidact or even just uh, educated in so many realms. I mean, Richard and I always joke with each other that we are fonts of useless information <laughs> you know, because we know all this. I mean, Richard and I had a six-year argument about whether there was such a thing as a tidal river. Yeah. <laughs> it never really resolved. It's, no, I mean, I've come to accept that, that there are tides within the estuaries of a river. Right. I've come to accept that as a compromise point. That was 20, I don't 20 years. That the took... tide goes all the way up the river to the source. And I, I believe that's the... That's sort of like Zeno's paradox. You know, yes. Zeno, right? Yes. So yes, but in a way, it's almost like a, a flow versus sampling kind of uh, metaphor. No, there's a logic. My logic, Richard's logic is, is that the tide is, if the oceanic tides are affecting the estuary, then there's a tidal interaction with how the river ebbs and flows in terms of its height. Tidal river. And my logic is, is that a river is created by melt-off from a source that it increases in strength or size or whatever to form tributaries into an estuary that goes out to sea. So the directionality is from source to sea. So I don't recognize the influence of sea to source because it doesn't reach the source. So I don't believe that, this, that the river is tidal. But that doesn't mean I don't agree that Richard's analysis that there is such a thing as a tidal river exists. But it took us six years to get to that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it, it was complicated. poem that you wrote, uh, this is right at the end where you wrote, and soulless conversations about the wounds we all carry, drowning out the Durkheim uncertainty principle. Well, I did change that. So I don't know if that's, I changed it in the, oh, did you? In, in the one, the new one I said, I changed it to metaphysical uncertainty principles. Okay. Well, both are interesting because they're ineffable. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm juxtaposing, I'm juxtaposing there. So why did you write that? What is It seems to have something to do with profundity, or I don't want to use profundity as a, as a cliche. There's a draw towards depth. We don't really talk about it much. It sounds pretentious. But still, why create? 
To me, uncertainty is something to be enjoyed. It's a realm that if I wasn't able to enter the landscapes of uncertainty, the explore unknown spaces of consciousness, of interaction, just even in terms of writing or thinking, whatever, I, I think uh, I would be bored. I would be quite miserable, and I am sometimes miserable. You're missing the juxtaposition, which is... Mm, go on, yeah, tell me. Well, what do you mean? I mean, linguistically combining... Uh, one of my favorite authors on metaphysics and, and spirituality, which is Carl Fried Durkheim, and uh, Heisenberg. So I'm I'm taking the the secondary postulate of uncertainty principle, which states that the act of observation interferes with the perception of how things outcome. So Heisenberg's uncertainty principle says that by observing things as they occur, you're interfering with the actual outcome. And Durkheim, or you're reducing it. It all depends on what the observer decides to measure or how they decide, what the paradigms of measurement. Well, no, that's not true. According to, according to Heisenberg, it's not the decision of anything because that's, that's more quantum. That's actually more Schrodinger, your, your, your volitional component. But it's the act of observation. You know, you know the, the slit? Yeah, the act of observation affects the observed in a sense. Well, the, you, know the slit, you know the slit field experiment? It's where the photons are going, deciding where they want to go. Whether the... The detector shows the result as waves or particles, yeah, wavicles. Anyway, so, I mean, the whole poem is, and I'll probably reread it again because now I don't know what, the, what your audience is going to hear. Because if, it's, if the sentence is metaphysical uh, uncertainties, you know, I have a real disdain and dislike for metaphysical exploration. I have a more Christopher Hitchens perspective on things that I don't believe in the supernatural. I don't believe in the metaphysical I don't believe it's necessary to be a spiritual person to believe in supernatural or metaphysical. Durkheim had a much more grounded sense of experience in trying to express the ineffable, which I that's what I really like about him. There are a lot of things about him that I don't particularly like, his affiliation with Nazis and all that other stuff. But his writing, his skillfulness in writing very complex language, the ones, I mean, there's a very famous, uh, the way of transformation is probably the most famous quote of what he's trying to point to, and that's a very, I can't do it by memory. But uh, the opening is something like, those who are really along the way will not, as a resolution point, will not turn to a friend for comfort, but will rather dil diligently seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to pass through whatever it is that they're experiencing. And I'm, I'm definitely paraphrasing here. But he's looking at, you know, not looking at comfort or settling, but more the looking for that Sangha component of pushing through to get to a place where it's non-conditional. And I think in the poem, within the context of the poem, a lot of the things I'm pointing to are the places within spiritual and the modern-day mindfulness movement that I find extremely distasteful and that don't work for me. And it's an angry poem. I mean, you, you know mm -hmm. me, Richard. Yeah. An angry poem. Yeah. But it's more about sort of like, angry because none of this stuff really makes sense. And, you know, at the very end, I think I say something to the effect of, you know, I am the too loud guitar between... I'm the anger and the poetic sense of injustice that hates DJs and DMT and soulless conversations about the wounds we all carry. And the last line is, I am the too loud guitar yeah, in the space the between line. words. I've always been described as somewhat intense. <laughs> okay. I've been described, or the words too intense, I think Richard is more familiar with having. The biggest critique you got when you were fronting rock bands was too many notes. Oh, yes. I, I've definitely played many notes in my life. Yeah. 
How, which one would you like me to remove exactly? Mm. The point is, is that there are, there's a movement within the industrialization of the spiritual movement, the mindfulness movement, which I'm still around. I, I was working for Naropa University. I was working for large mindfulness organizations. I've been around a lot of well-known spiritual teachers, as is Richard. And, and we've known all these people. And a lot of it degrades and devolves into these very sort of mindless conversations, which focus on sort of a very Western therapy therapy talk sort of thing about the wounds we all carry mm. you know even when you get down to constellation work or depth psychology it's like these inherent sort of wounds and at a certain point and especially within the buddhist community it's like okay well i've heard the four noble truths and i, I understand the immeasurables and the three jewels and i understand that how many times are you going to say it to me the system of Buddhism and religious organizations and spiritual organizations to keep people in thrall. Because if you actually evolve and learn something about this stuff and get to the point where it's actually integrated and part of it, you don't need any of that stuff. It's meaningless. But the people who attach themselves to the hierarchical components, especially in the spiritual communities, are very invested in who they are as being these guru lineages. We kind of concluded in the Tula guitar, but let's go back there a minute. There's something in there I'd like to open up. And what you wrote as the last line of the poem in this one version is, I am the too loud guitar in the space between words. The too loud part is interesting. And also, this, you know, the space between words, you can say, well, that's music in a way, or that's what music does. But the too loud guitar is interesting because it's like a, an irritant or it's not pleasant there, but you're... Kind of like, you know, waving a flag for something. Well, I mean, you're, you're hearing something, but I mean, I actually, there's a specific thought process to that, which is I've played in a million bars where people are all talking while you're playing. Right. And then they come up to you after the end and go, man, you were really loud. And I'm like, well, maybe you shouldn't have been sitting in a club listening to music. I mean, if, you know, if you go to a club and I mean, in the old days, and that's not saying that I don't have a sense of dynamic range or, you know, appropriate volume, but I mean, it's interesting. There's, there are patterns in our culture of who's allowed to do what, and they're pretty random. For example, uh, Robin Ford, who's a really amazing guitar player who I've known most of my life and been inspired by at early stages, and he can play as loud as he wants in any space that he wants. Or Joe Bonamassa, for example, can play as loud as he wants in any space he wants, and that's acceptable because it's Robin Ford or Joe Bonamassa. Right. If a person who doesn't have that kind of reputational... Mm -hmm. state goes into a bar or a club or event. Listen, I played a gig three years ago at a large opera house and I walked in, set my amp down on the stage and walked over to the other musicians and the sound guy started yelling at me. And I looked at the guy and I said, I haven't plugged in yet. I haven't even gotten on the stage. My amp is still <laughs> turned off. I'm, I'm standing over here. <laughs> I, he'd had a very loud band the night before. What and he was, was you know, he talking about? My, my honest thinking is, is that a lot of times when you're on stage and looking out at the audience, especially in nightclubs and playing, there can be differential audiences. So preconception. If I'm playing with someone famous, generally people are listening and there's something going on. But if you're playing a more intimate project and there are people there, there can be occasions where they're just talking and they can't hear each other because the band is loud. And inevitably, the band is loud not because the drummer's hitting so hard that you have to play at a certain volume to match him because they think the guitar players are loud or they're sitting in front of my amp or whatever. And so my image at the end was, well, too fucking bad. I'm the too loud guitar between, you know, words. 
I am the too loud guitar in the space between words, between the bums and the punks, bridging the transatlantic metaphorical alliterations and breathless gaps of refuge not taken and reimagining the precepts of Tantra distorted like snow lions painted black as obsidian. You know, and what's funny is Richard's not quite remembering, but Richard came to Boulder and did a poetry reading where we did a jam together. And this is the poem that I read. Richard had a bunch of poetry and I played guitar. And then I had a spot where I read that poem and played guitar to myself reading that poem. That's why I chose this for this particular, for this. That's cool. I forgot that. As you say in Japanese, naskashi na, which means kind of... um, I like that, naskashi na. Like a certain kind of depth of nostalgia, which is positive. Like, wow, that brings me back. You know, that, that resonates. I can remember something that was like a golden aura of a certain time when actually we were able to hang around in public and have poetry readings with music uh, to a, a kind of appreciative audience of outlying artists. Why did you say we are the unfettered anger of a generation looking out at those who choose not to howl or to follow the mad ones or the dreamers? Well, because you and I were Kerouac disciples, essentially. I mean, you and I actually were the guys who followed the mad ones, the dreamers. That's the Kerouac quote. Yeah, well, got us to Naropa. Right, but that's the thing is like, you know, you and I were friends with Alan Ginsberg. Mm. And we, you know, I mean, I have a very distinct memory of Alan. When I was living with Alan, I was not the healthiest person. I was smoking, you remember, I was smoking two or three packs a day. Mm. I was drinking a bit. I was not eating very well. And Alan came to a gig I was at and I was playing with a band on a stage at the Blue Note. Blue Note in Boulder. And Alan walked on stage with a, yeah. And he walked on stage with a pizza and wouldn't leave until I'd eaten some (laughs) of the pizza. Yeah. He was like that. Yeah. And it was like, you know, we were like a mom, like a good mom. Yes. He was watching out for me and we were around, you know, Bukowski and, Mm. and, uh, Ferlinghetti and, uh, uh, Corso, well, yeah, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. You know, and uh, I liked I Ferlinghetti, actually. I always liked the dinner conversations. He was really interesting, mm. you know. And what was the guy, the, the junkie guy? Uh, oh, Burroughs. Burroughs. I yeah. loved him. Yeah. He was, he, I never could tell if he was high or not, but he was, he was really, well, cut out the junkie guy that's thing, sort of He was known, well known. Yeah. 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 Burroughs was really interesting to talk to. And I was 20, 21 years old. And we, you and I, we're at a very amazing juncture in culture and spirituality and confluence of, yeah. you know, Boulder was a Mecca at that point in time. And, and we are the unfettered anger of, because it's turned into this, this nothingness. Milk toast, a kind of milk toast influencer. Yeah. Metaphysics is like the, is the reigning power of, yeah. of language and discourse. And, yeah. you know, I have no problem with inclusivity or, you know, equality or, those things, but you know, there is a sharp edge to the razor's edge. And we, we walked it in very challenging times. Uh, maybe not as challenging in this, as in this moment, we're in a very dark period. Maybe I'm taking Liberty or using the Royal we, when I say I am part of the unfettered anger, I am angry. I don't agree with apathy. I have a 28 year old son who's not apathetic. And so I can see it's, possible that you can be right. engaged in the world with a sense of you know political and social methodology and, and ideology 
And I don't, I don't like how the world is moving right now and divisive rhetoric and, mm. and unsubstantiated senses of partisanship that have no real meaning. Mm-hmm. And so I am the unfettered anger about people choosing not to howl, choosing not to yeah. explore the edge and, and be, and to diminish those of us who are like to marginalize and diminish anybody who's willing to risk, who's willing to, you know, create for the sake of creating and transform the world and show people a different view of the world that has value. And to not see that is, is I think the great failing of the social mm-hmm. construct of the social contract and the social construct. Everybody's so immersed in either survival or acquisition of material wealth right. that they've lost sight of the fact that we're all on this tiny blue dot and we're going to be dead soon. Mm-hmm. Or, or a group ideology following there's, you know, that's the critical theory crowd of the woke, woke institutions that have sprung up in the last five or six years. Well, I think it's still you. It's angry in a different way. It's angry like, what have you done to me? <laughs> and where's mine? And Well, I think that, again, that's part of the wounds. The culture is wounded. The global culture is wounded. And you and I have arguments about whether there's such a thing as global culture. But I think at this point, there's a global culture because mm-hmm. there's a global, there's a mimetic, I don't know if that's a real word, but a mimetic, mimetic, you know, yeah. transponder that basically, you know, circumnavigates mm-hmm. the globe fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so we're constantly right. evolving perspective. You know, you had mm-hmm. the political agenda, the social agenda. I mean, if you look at how fast just the pandemic spread, you know, it's... It's, it's a kind of uh, real metaphor. Yeah, and it's, well, I mean, it's very... Well, if you think 1917, it was a similar pattern, and they didn't have global travel like we do now. Mm-hmm. And it was a similar distribution and timeline pattern, a little a little bit slower... But similar, similar in, in the dispersal, you know, it's it's the same with ideas and memes and culture now, and it's a very aggressive mentality. It's like not particularly fostering a connectivity or humane practices. Yeah, it's the ironic paradox of this amazing technology, you know, social platforms, and you have millions of dollars worth of, you know, going back to the eighties, you have millions of dollars worth of software and hardware at your fingertips for very little money relatively and can do amazing things. And yet, sort of what it's gotten turned into is uh, viral superficiality. And That's the name of this episode. <laughs> viral superficiality. Yeah. Music for cows, viral, okay. Music for cows, colon, viral superficiality. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of a cut on cows. I don't know. I have to say in this conversation, because again, we've been friends 41 years, Richard, you and I are so much quicker to just jump on each other's. Yeah. That's, we have differences of views, but we're both erudite in our own ways. Yeah. And it's a nice opportunity to hear you wax both poetic and prosaic about uh, how you're experiencing things right now, creatively, and in terms of the music business too, which is really fascinating. And, and in terms of art for life, which is what we're trying to approach here, that, that general topic. God, that sounds like a gang slogan. Art for life. Yeah. <laughs> art for life, man. Art full life. Art full life. <laughs> Not oh. art for yeah, life. Like a teardrop on my cheek. <laughs> right. Art for life. <laughs> That's a good place to end. That's a good place to end. Yeah. Yeah. Peace out. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Hey, thanks, John. No problem, Jeff. Great to meet you, man. If you enjoyed this podcast... Please subscribe to Usual Pets on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also leave a comment at usualpets.com. 
If you would like to support Usual Pets, please consider becoming a patron and head over to the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash usual pets. Music for this podcast has been composed and performed by Gilbert and Cairns. Music